Last time, we chatted with Tim Duggan, the author of Cult Status, How to Build a Business People Adore. As is my desire to keep this podcast as organic as possible, I asked him who I should speak to next, and without hesitation, he suggested Simon Griffiths, the co-founder of Who Gives a Crap, a business that, for heaps of reasons, has taken off over the past 12 months. His story is superb, and I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Purpose and Vision, the podcast that digs deep into why and how companies are making a greater impact in our world by focusing on profit and purpose. This is the podcast that tells the stories and inspires us all to think differently about business today. Yeah, I think I think that whole kind of there's got to be a different way of doing this thing has been like a common streak since I was very young, which probably made me a bit of a nightmare as a, as a child and um, definitely occasionally makes me a bit of a nightmare as a colleague to work with as well <laughs> yeah. because I do like to kind of throw the textbook a little bit out the window and start from first principles and say, well, you know, why is it that this should exist and what should it look like and is there a different way of doing this? Um, and sometimes that's a very slow way of doing things because there's a well-trodden path that has been mm. you know, tried and tested and proven. And other times it leads you to to breakthroughs. And I think that's sort of what ultimately ended up happening with, um, you know, after I've been through university and, and studied uh, engineering and finance and economics, I started thinking about, well, you know, we've got these big problems and how do you solve them? You know, is business really a mechanism where that could work and, and why why are businesses profitable and why do they exist to only return profits to shareholders? Is there a different way of thinking about this and, and can you motivate a consumer to think about how they're buying products a little bit differently by starting to incorporate mm. social impact into purchases? And so all of those questions and questioning and, and kind of coming back to first principles about, you know, even the Corporations Act and, and what happens if you don't fulfill all of your rights to shareholders yeah. and maximize profit for them, which is what you're supposed to do by law. Like, is there a different way of going about things that could allow us to function, you know, differently in society and the economy that would be more positive for everyone i love that um, i love that we'll come back to yeah. the setup of that business because that is something that i'm hoping others will go well we could do the same and that's the whole idea really around this podcast to hear people who are doing it successfully and making a uh, a, a fabulous sort of give back as well but I, I just want to explain i get you to explain the why process why you felt compelled to do something about it what was that sort of something inside you that that others might sort of recognize but sort of move on from yeah i think um it's it's not an easy question to answer and I've, I've probably thought a little bit more about this recently than what i normally do and there's something you know i think part of it on like a, a micro level is this um innate kind of um feeling of wanting to try different things and challenge things and and see what's possible and then on a macro level i think there was something else that sort of clicked for me which was around um being very fortunate to spend a lot of time in <clears throat> in different parts of the developing world when I was growing up because my parents, we moved from uh, from London to Western Australia when I was very young and went back to see our family. And every, every two years when we did that, you know, the, there wasn't direct flights back in those days. So mm. um, we'd travel through some pretty bizarre parts of the world, which was my dad's doing. He'd try to take us to, you know, somewhere mm. different every time we went back. And that meant that when I was very young, I got to spend time in you know, Malaysia, Zimbabwe, Egypt, Japan, um, and sort of experience different cultures. And, and I think as you're a kid kind of going into those environments, 
they just seem normal and, and what you want to do as a kid is have fun and, and play with the people that you meet along the way. And so for me, I had all of these very kind of formative experiences of meeting other kids that were my age who, you know, we could play together and have fun regardless of what background we'd come from, where we were born, you know, um, the color of our skin. And then later on in life, I realized that the experiences that I would ultimately have later in my life were going to be vastly different to those kids that I'd met and played with along the way, you know, on those trips because I was born in a suburb that was, you know, more wealthy in a country that had a greater safety net, you know, um, yeah, you know, mm. was able to go to university and, and study something that enabled me to earn more money for, for my time than, than what it was if I'd grown up in, in a different part of the world. And I think I became really interested in, you know, why is that and what can we do yeah. to, to shift the needle on that to make it possible for anyone, regardless of where they are, to start to get more equal access to opportunities? Isn't that interesting? In those two answers that you've given, you've, you've sort of got both sides. One, first of all, that sort of curiosity, isn't there a better way of doing business so that it's not all about the shareholder, there is something which we're, you know, deep down doing that is good. And then secondly, your upbringing, which allowed you to see and become conscious of another world. And you've put those two together with great effect with Who Gives a Crap, which we'll come on to in just a moment. But I I suppose I'm curious to know how that little germ of an idea went through the formulative process, especially when you're throwing the idea around to others. So you start to socialise this idea. And that's, uh, if you like, quite a big block because not everyone's on the same wavelength. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think it um, it was a really you know getting to the the final kind of who gives a crap idea was um, many years in the making, and so a few friends and I started a, a kind of technology kind of nonprofit that um, existed to generate ad revenue and then donate all of that ad revenue to a, a charity that was selected by the user that came through our website. So a click to give or search to give website where we had you know a search engine embedded on the homepage. And we realized pretty quickly through that that when we first launched, we launched an amazing product that we built with all of this pro bono kind of web development support from someone who um, came and, and helped kind of co-found the, the business. But we quickly realized that that business wasn't going to be super sustainable because it donated 100% of its revenue. So it didn't even have money to cover ongoing costs. We, we were kind of funding those out of our back pocket, let alone all of the R&D required to sort of stay at the cutting edge of of um the internet, which is where you need to be as a technology company. And so I kind of iterated on that business model with a second version that was um, similar social business concept that was one of my friends from university who had the idea. um, And that was a hospitality business that sold different beers and wines from all over the developing world. And 100% of the profits went back to organizations in each drinks country of origin. So having um, a South African wine you know the the profits from all of our wine sales would support local language books to school kids in south africa Uh, having one of our ethiopian beers supported you know small-scale farmers in in rural ethiopia right and so um that was 100 percent profit donating so we could still have costs and run a sustainable business and and just donate 100 percent of the profits at the end of the year and doing that again i realized that it's not a super sustainable way to grow a business You're, you're kind of um faced with a lot of challenges you know you can't 
raise external capital because you don't have any equity in the business to sell. You can't motivate your early staff members. You're probably paying less than what they could get in other jobs elsewhere with um, a slice of the business or equity in the business to, to help sort of, you know, cover that shortfall. And um, inherently it's a, a very challenging business to grow and make sustainable over time because at the end of the year, you're donating a hundred percent of what you have, you know, as profits in the business and, with a business that's growing quickly because you're using the cash in the bank to invest in inventory, you tend to have less cash in the bank than, than the profit that you've turned for that year. Yeah. And so to donate a hundred percent of your profits, you have to borrow money to make up that shortfall and, and, <laughs> right. and get it out of the business. And so you create a less and less you know, sustainable business as you put more and more debt into it as it grows. How interesting. So you, through experimentation, you realize that actually there's probably, it, it's sort of the right model, but the, the, the balance is not quite right. And that's allowed yeah. you to sort of shape who gives a crap in a, in a slightly different way. Yeah. And so the, I think the penny kind of dropping there was, you know, this, this is resonating with the customer. There's something in this yeah. that is exciting for the customer. But um, business models are very challenging. You know, hospitality is a very challenging industry. Um, it also doesn't appeal to every single person in Australia. So it's going to be limited in its scale because someone in you know Western Australia can't come to a hospitality business in Melbourne. Not everyone wants to, to drink alcohol. And so we've got kind of a, a limited pool of people that we can attract. And yeah, you know, the inherent lack of scalability that comes with a bricks and mortar business. And so then I started saying, well, this concept works. How can we take this concept to make it accessible to anyone, regardless of where they are in the country or possibly around the world? And started thinking about, you know, mass market consumer goods. And one day walked into the bathroom, saw a six pack of toilet paper sitting there and said, oh my God, we should sell toilet that's paper, it. use the profits, build toilets and court. Who gives a crap? Um, <laughs> and it was literally we, as simple started. as that. How lovely. Uh, and I, I love it. But the, the idea had certainly been germinating. It wasn't literally that sort of, you know, the, the, the classic sort of you became an instant sort of um, superstar with your latest single, which had been 25 years yeah. in the making. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that was like probably from 2005 to 2010, to, just to get to the the idea and we're 10 years on from that now yeah. so yeah so it's kind of 15 years in the making to get to where we are today and that all came from yeah that habit of kind of questioning why we do things asking if there's a better way of doing it trying things out getting it wrong and, and eventually kind of coming to the thing that was that, that yeah was possible and, and would work in the long run always interested in how people like you Simon uh, convey to the masses this new way of doing business and there'll be people who'll be listening to this podcast who are sort of drawn to this idea of purpose uh, and profit rather than you know one or the other can can you in your own words in that sort of sort of 30 second sort of um, elevator pitch what, what what do you say to people about this whole concept I think um, yeah I think what we've shown with our business I think the, the old way of doing business, is the assumption that you have to make profit before you can donate money and have purpose. And so entrepreneurs, you know, business owners would make a lot of money and then they would become philanthropists. And so they, they kind of separated profit and purpose. And I think what we've shown and our belief is that profit and purpose are actually inextricably linked. And if you can get it right, then the purpose enables you to grow the business and actually generate more profits than what you would without that in there. And so we firmly believe that's true with who gives a crap. You know, we think about the product, the brand and, and the cause that we support being, um, 
you know, the three kind of elements that are important for our business to be successful. Mm. If you removed any one of those, so if, if it wasn't about toilet paper or if you removed the, the brand name or you took away the sanitation cause, we don't think the business would be anywhere near as big and successful as what it is today. And so I think what we've been able to show is that if you get that right, then profit and purpose are actually, you know, they go hand in hand. Okay. Do you think people would be buying from you or working for you if it was a different cause that you were supporting? Does that not really make any difference? I think that there's something, the, the kind of secret sauce is getting the the cause really tightly related to the, the products that you're selling. So it, it links the idea that as a consumer, by buying this thing that I need, I'm helping someone else out with, you know, something that's tightly related to this. And that's, you know, part of the the special sauce that, that makes Who Gives a Crap successful. How did you come about creating a model for Who Gives a Crap in terms of where that money was going to be spent and on, on what sort of projects? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things there. You know, we landed on 50% of profits instead of 100% because of that past experience I'd had mm. with running a nonprofit business and realizing that that it had a lot of challenges. Um, and so we landed on 50% because we thought that, ultimately we could build a business that would be at least twice as big as if we were donating 100% of our profits and therefore it would have more impact because you know we're donating half of our profits but we can be at least twice as big and so the end result is you know more profits being donated overall and then the other part of it is that we realized that although we knew a lot about sanitation and and how to go about achieving impact in that sector um, what we were really experts at was making and selling toilet paper, and we needed we needed to find people who knew even more about sanitation than we did in order to to allocate the capital in the most efficient you know the capital that we're donating in the most efficient way. And so um, we kind of looked around the world and said, who are the 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 best philanthropists that we can find? And we sort of um, found a few organisations that we thought were doing really incredible work. Um, so the Malago Foundation in San Francisco, Jasmine Social Investments in New Zealand, and they put us in touch with the Wheeler Family Foundation in Australia, um, and eventually, you know, a few other contacts that came through that network. And we said to them, how do we get as good at philanthropy as, as what you are? How do we make sure we're, you know, really getting the, the most impact for every dollar that we're donating? And they said, well, that's easy. You just need a team of five people and a million dollars and we can help you do it. So we don't have either of those things. Like how are we supposed to get started? Yeah. And the, the really good news about, you know, the, the nonprofit sector or the, the philanthropy sector in particular is that everyone has the same shared goal. So they said to us, look, we'll help you. We can share some of our notes with you because ultimately we're all trying to fund these organizations to mm. enable them to do better work. And if we can help someone else, you know, put funding in then we're going to have more impact with every you know every hour that we spend working mm. on, on the due diligence of this particular project and so we were very lucky to sort of um yeah find some of our early partners kind of through that that network um but i think the the tricky thing is that you know sanitation doesn't have a silver bullet so it's mm. one of these areas where there's still a lot of innovation required to to get to a place where we know what the the right solution is and you can kind of roll that out everywhere um, and so it's, um, yeah, it's an area where unfortunately there's, there's no perfect solution yet. Mm. And so we adopt this approach of kind of taking a like portfolio approach to how we fund, um, the sector where we've got a very blue chip, reliable kind of, um, investments, which for us is, is WaterAid and we fund WaterAid Australia and WaterAid USA, knowing that they do amazing work that's tried and tested and, and gives us a good return on every dollar that we put in. 
but we also fund some higher risk stuff that has the potential to have some some really high mm. returns with a, a smaller part of our funding. And so for us, that's an organization called Sanergy in Kenya who um, work in the, the urban slums of, of Nairobi and, and now are expanding outside into, into Kenya's second largest city as well. And basically, you know, those slums, they're very densely kind of populated. So you can't put vehicles through them because the, the, the streets aren't big enough. And you can't plumb the streets either because there's, you know, just the infrastructure isn't isn't set up to make that possible. And so they have above ground toilets where basically you screw on the, the lid to a canister and remove, you know, the waste from the toilet, put it onto a trolley, wheel it out of the slum, load it onto a truck and then take it away for offsite processing where black soldier flies, you know, eat waste and then uh, this then gets turned into either, you know, the black soldier flies then mm. either get turned into to chicken feed or into fertilizer, which um, creates a, a, a money stream out of, out of you know, human waste, which is wow. kind of bizarre alchemy. Yeah. But the, the bet is that if they can get the cost of putting toilets down to a level that's low enough, it becomes more efficient for the Kenyan government to step in and provide <laughs> toilets to everyone in the urban slums of Kenya than it, than it costs to allow the sanitation problem to exist because there's, you know, a significant cost associated with having, um, yeah, this health problem mm. in, in the economy. Isn't it interesting? And I'm listening to you and, and clearly the, the donation part, the giving part, the philanthropy part is as important as the business part and do you think that's important that it's not just a case of well it's a sort of sideline it's a sort of side hustle you know that other bit you know but but really our core is for example with you making the toilet paper it, it doesn't really matter as long as we're seen to be doing the right thing no i think you know the the, the impact part is it's just so incredibly important it's the reason why we exist i think that um what we've always said though is that there's three parts to our business you know we have to make toilet paper, sell toilet paper, and then create impact with the profits. And if we can't do the middle piece, the selling toilet paper, then it doesn't really matter if we can make toilet paper yep. or if we can you know, do the impact. Yep. So let's get the middle piece right first, and then we can come back and, and really you know, make sure that we're doing an incredible job making toilet paper and making that as sustainably as we possibly can. Mm. And we can do an incredible job you know, with the, the impact side of the business and being really high impact with the money that we're donating. And so we've spent a lot of time now on the making toilet paper side. And of course, there's still room to improve there. And I think there always will be. But now we're starting to, you know, especially as our donations have come up over a million dollars for the first time um, as our annual donation, we're starting to invest a lot more into the, the impact side and making sure that we're, we're doing that really right. So we're hiring our first head of impact at the moment who will really champion you know, the, the portfolio selection of mm. which organizations we're funding and then help us think about how we you know, um, take what we're seeing in, in the beneficiaries we're working with and communicate that to our customers and to our team in a way that that allows us to kind of get close to the impact that we're creating. Fantastic. Um, I'm interested in the difference between the days of you doing your very clever, you know, sort of funding uh, campaign and, and raising money through crowdfunding, which is a, a, an obvious, I suppose, connector in many ways since it was so public-minded, but also then compare and contrast that with last year, 2020, a year which was probably nothing like you ever imagined it would be because of the pandemic and what that did to uh, turbocharge this business. Yeah. Um, so I think you, you sort of alluded to our, our first crowdfunding campaign, which was pretty interesting. So I think, you know, 
almost 10 years ago, we realized that that just as crowdfunding was starting to become a known concept, um, it was a pretty good mechanism for us to fund our business because it would enable us to get the capital we needed to place our first production run, which we honestly didn't have. And it would also help us find our first 1,000 customers, which was really important because if you go and place the minimum order of toilet paper to a manufacturer, you get 50,000 rolls of toilet paper, which is enough to like fill your entire house from floor to ceiling. Uh, And so you really need to find those first 1,000 customers to take that product off your hands so that you don't get stuck with it. Otherwise, um, you know, you've got a a pretty challenging um, problem in front of you. And so crowdfunding was a great way of getting the capital we needed, but also the customers and and the eyeballs on the brand to to help us gut check that this was a a good idea that was worth us spending, you know, the next five plus years of our life on. And and obviously we're, you know, 10 years on from that now. And so I think what we realized though was that we were crowdfunding probably the most boring product in the history of crowdfunding. You know, it wasn't some sexy tech product and um, we didn't have a crazy cult following behind us that we could leverage to get the money we needed. And so we had to do something a little bit different to get people's attention. And one of the guys working on the campaign had the, the great idea that we should film the whole campaign with me sitting on a toilet and I should pledge to not get off that toilet until we'd pre-sold the first $50,000 worth. Such of product, a great product. idea. And you sat on that toilet for how long? Yeah. So, so we launched, you know, um, with me sitting on a toilet at 6am on Tuesday morning, we thought it would take, you know, hopefully like 12 hours, we'd go viral and get all the money in quite quickly. Yeah. Or maybe the worst case, it would take a week, but I'd be able to sleep, you know, on the ground and sticky tape my hand to the toilet bowl. So I was technically <laughs> still on it. But um, basically the, the campaign, you know, it did go viral. We got picked up by national television in Australia, you know, shortly after launching national print across all of the major press. Um, went viral quite quickly on social media. We did 2.5 million social media hits. And after 50 of the most horrible, never ever to be repeated hours of my life, we hit that target. The crazy thing was that we were for some reason really popular in Brazil and Greece. And so we unfortunately were on 24 seven, because if you think about the Australian time zone, Brazil, which is on like a New York time zone and the European time zone, that means you've got eyeballs on you throughout the whole day. And so I actually couldn't get off the toilet until we had all of the money in. Wow. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, I stayed up for 46 hours before kind of wow. turning around and passing out <laughs> on the system behind me. And then um, someone woke me up two hours after that and said, we're almost there, kind of wake up and we're, we're going to get the last money in. So uh, kind of an amazing way to get started. Totally. Um, and that was, you know, the, the first time we went viral. And then, yeah, the second time that we went viral was, was in 2020, you know, in the first few days of March when I think um, toilet paper shelves started to empty out and people started sort of sharing photos of, of empty shelves, which was a bit of a shock to see. Yeah. And our customers on social media were commenting on these photos saying, why are you buying from supermarkets when you could be buying from who gives a crap? You know, they sell an environmental, a mentally friendly product and, and use their profits to help build toilets. Like, what are you doing buying from the supermarket? And so our customers kind of sent us viral with tens of thousands of social media mentions that, um, yeah, ultimately meant that our kind of daily sales, you know, on the first day of March doubled a regular day. And then the next day they were up 5x a regular day and then 12x a regular day after that. And then the next day, the 4th of March, it looked like we were going to do, you know, 30 to 40 times a regular day of sales, which... um, is more than a month in a day and wow. at that point we were you know australia's largest retailer of, of toilet paper i'm fairly certain just yeah. based on volume 
Um, and we had to turn our site to sold out to make sure that we were holding on to enough inventory for our subscribers. We'd want to make sure never, ever run out of toilet paper again. Um, and so pretty like, you know, high um, stress moment for us trying to figure out what's the right moment, the right time to, to make that change. Um, I think we got the timing pretty good and, and we turned on a, 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 an email sign up so you could find out when we were back in stock. We thought we'd get a few thousand people on that wait list, but ended up with more than half a million people wow. to, to find out. So yeah, another kind of pretty big challenge that, that came out of that one. Um, but, you know, as you said, sort of quite amazing sort of, you know, bookmarks almost on, yeah. on the start of the journey and the, the more recent part of, of what we've been doing. That is, that is amazing. And, and how did you go about dealing with that pressure? Because it's a lovely pressure. Everyone wants your product, but you don't want to let people down. You've built up a great brand, a great reputation. You've got good stories to tell. Last thing you want is for people to be disappointed. So how did you keep people in the loop? Yeah, I think, and we also felt this, like the weight of the social responsibility of, you know, people are panicking because they don't have access to this product that's always been a commodity. And that's, you know, we're essentially, we have product, like, you know, we've got to figure out how to get it to the most people possible. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty challenging moment, I think, for, for the company, um, particularly when you reflect back on, you know, March, April, 2020, every day I'd wake up and get my phone straight away to find out what had happened overnight because the world was sort of crumbling around yeah. us in those first couple of months of the pandemic. Um, but I think, you know, our team really realized that as a, it's kind of, you know, it's funny now, but as a, a remote first company where most people are, you know, working from home, you know, at least two to three days a week, sometimes five days a week, that's been selling toilet paper online, you know, for five years prior, six years prior, 2020 in a way was the year that we'd been training for and trying to trying to get get ready for that moment. And so our team really realized that it was our time to shine. And if we went and solved this problem and did it really well, because we donate 50% of our profits, it was going to end up in this amazing donation come the end of the financial year. And so everyone sort of did early mornings and, and late nights without us even asking. Everyone just kind of jumped yeah, in. Yeah. And figured out that, you know, to get the most orders out possible, we had to repack our big 48 roll boxes into two 24 packs. We hired and trained 25 freelancers in a week to triple our customer service volume so that we could send more orders. And then we set up an invite only version of our website and sent um, just enough emails every day to invite just enough people through that store to place just enough orders to take our warehouse to their absolute maximum daily limits of the mm. number of orders that they could they could send out. And we did that for about eight weeks running, you know, this secret online toilet paper club, which was probably the coolest club in the world at that point in time because every other nightclub was shut. <laughs> but um, I think we, yeah, ended up working our way through that 600,000 person wait list and tried to give priority to our returning customers who'd you know, maybe been with us for six years prior with regular orders, but for whatever reason didn't have a subscription. So we could find their email addresses in our, in our database and try to shuffle them to, you know, uh, an earlier part of the queue so that we could get product out to them as quickly as possible. Fantastic. So that was a, a pretty big challenge. And, yeah. you know, a big part of it was um, just communicating regularly and communicating early to everyone on that wait list, as well as our subscribers to let them know what was going on and try to try to create some ease around the panic that I think the world was feeling at that mm -hmm. moment in mm -hmm. time. And then another part of it was we realized that, you know, our existing customers who did have product they're buying 24 packs or 48 packs from us that last, you know, six, 12 months at a time. 
So there was no way that they would need all of that product through the pandemic. And yeah. so we realized that it was this moment where we could encourage our customers to have a little bit of empathy for what was going on around them and make sure that their neighbors and their friends and family were safe and supported and you know had toilet paper in their bathrooms, which um, a lot of people didn't. And so I think that was kind of a lot of what our communication centered around rather than fueling the panic, which, you know, some people might have thought would be good for business perhaps in the short run we were trying to figure out how to how to create a sense of empathy which we thought would be you know the best for society yeah. in the long run fantastic and i love that that connection with society and with giving back and always helping and always conscious of others which i think is very different in the business world today but i know you'll be very proud and i know it's on your your website but you know 5.85 million dollars donated last year that's that's yeah. remarkable and that was kind of the icing on the cake. So, you know, coming into June, we kind of finally got through the the, the wait list and cleared it out. And then, um, yeah, you know, I think at February we were targeting maybe a 2 to $3 million donation. So getting that up to $5 million Amazing. at the end of the financial year was just, a, you know, a massive pat on the back for everyone that had worked so hard to get to that point. Yeah. As people listen to this and they might have their own business or they might be thinking about going into business, you sort of painted a very positive picture about the idea of, you know, purpose and profit being very much intrinsically linked. What would you sort of encourage people to do if they've not taken first steps? What would you what would you say the most important part is? I mean, I think it's 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 becoming table stakes and, and really kind of acknowledging that this will be a necessary part of, you know, of brands in the future is super important. Um, and so I think we've kind of seen that now with sustainability over the last decade where, you know, 10 years ago, carbon neutrality was kind of a buzzword. You fast forward to where we are today, and I should say 10 years ago, you know, Tesla had just IPO'd for a billion dollars. Yeah. You fast forward to where we are today and the biggest brands in the world, Apple, Nike, everyone's got net zero carbon emission plans that are public facing that they're talking about to their customers. Tesla is the most valuable car company in the world. And so sustainability has gone through this, this massive kind of growth trajectory in the last decade. And that's where it feels like we're at today with, with this kind of profit for purpose movement where you know, new brands are really thinking about this because it's in increasingly important to our customer. And I think it's about to become the next mega trend like sustainability, which means that every brand, you know, the big incumbents will have to be thinking about what they're doing in order to appeal to this part of the customer psyche that will, if they don't do it, mean that, you know, they become less relevant in the future. Um, and so I think today it's an acknowledgement that that's a necessary part of building a sustainable business and then thinking about what is the right, you know, the right, the right purpose for us to be involved in and investing in in order to, to you know, create change, but also um, hopefully create something that resonates with our customer even more. Yeah. Your take is that we're really in the early days. Um, why do you think that is and how will this become more mainstream? Obviously, little conversations like this help, but it's still a long way to go before it starts to compete with the world of capitalism as we know it. Probably since the global financial crisis, I think that was this tipping point where consumers started realising that maybe capitalism in, in the form that it was in, you know, coming into the global financial crisis wasn't actually optimised for the world that we were living in and that there might actually be a better way of thinking about it. And so I think that planted a seed in people's minds that, you know, has slowly been watered on um, over the last 10 or 12 years that now is getting to a place where 
you know, there's this little part of everyone that, that wants to, to, to do good. And I think, um, we're seeing brands being able to tap into that and communicate with that part of the customer, which in some people is bigger than others. That's enabling, you know, these quite amazing brands to, to be, um, yeah, grown into, into hopefully the future incumbents that will, um, you know, be the brands that, that people look up to. has to be authentic there, doesn't it? You, you can't sort of sugarcoat this. You can't sort of greenwash it, as they say. It's got to be lived throughout the organisation. There'll be many that will think we could just hack that system and get the kudos from that and the business, business will flourish. What's your advice to those sort of thinkers? Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. I think, uh, and, and to, to some degree, like that's that's what we've been through with sustainability where, you know, 10 years ago, greenwashing was a big thing, but now the consumers are savvy enough that they, they can see greenwashing and understand when a company is, is not being authentic about it. And so I think we've sort of got this, this period where, um, you know, there, there, there's this potential to do the equivalent of greenwashing as consumers start to get more and more savvy. But the, the time frame for that is somewhat limited as, as people you know, really start to see what is genuine and what's not genuine and can assess that better and better. Um, so being authentic is a key part of that. Again, it, it might give you, you know, by, by putting something and hacking it and putting something in place that's not authentic, it might give you a step up for a couple of years. Mm. But, but as people catch up, it's ultimately going to be your downfall rather than you know, something that, that works in the long run. Simon, you're proudly incorporated as uh, uh, you, you have the uh, accreditation of being a B Corp. I want to ask you about how that plays an important part in your business culture. And for, for those who are unaware, the, the repercussions for anyone who's dealing with you or buying from you, all those sort of concepts which become part of that accreditation. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think B Corp's an interesting one for us. We're probably a little bit different to most companies. Um, I met the B Corp founders you know, probably a decade ago in San Francisco and they said um, this is what we're doing you know and I was like I love it it's great you know we should become one and they said well actually you know the way that your business is set up donating half of your profits I think it's probably pretty clear to your customer that you're already doing a lot of good through the business and the B Corp stamp is is going to be um less important to you than it is to other businesses that need to use it as a, as a stamp to show what ethics and values kind of sit behind the, the, the brand and the business that's customer facing today. And so that was really interesting. So we were actually a little bit later to, to become a B Corp member because of that. And ultimately the reason that we decided to do it was because we wanted to support the movement. You know, we talk in our business about having good influence and the ability to to shift the way that business is done. And we felt that being a B Corp member was an important way to, to you know, say, we think this is important and other businesses should be a part of it. Um, and so that's kind of how we've taken it. And so I think, you know, what does it mean for our staff? Um, of course, it means that we have this, this great accreditation that helps us to um, make sure we're, you know, performing well on some of the different attributes that get scored and, and perhaps some of them we wouldn't have paid as much attention to them as early as we did um, without the B Corp accreditation. So that's been really positive. Um, but I think in general, you know, the reason why our, our, our staff come and work for us is because of that purpose. And for us, um, you know, that, that runs deeper than just the B Corp certification. It's sort of a big part of our DNA and, and um, it's, it's not just about the impacts that we have today, but about the set of values and ethics that we have that we'll always use to make decisions into the future. Um, and so I think that's ultimately what 
our staff get excited by that you know they know that that if someone brings a good idea to us on how we can be better if it aligns with our ethics and our values we'll go and execute on it because we want to just continuously be better than what we are today spoke with Tim Duggan who very kindly suggested that I speak with you um, when we spoke in, in our first podcast and he said you've got to speak to Simon and in many ways it, it is a perfect place to start after speaking with Tim because he's built the book he's written the book cult status how to build a business people adore it's a weird thing because most people in the past you buy a commodity you buy a product whatever it might be because you need it whereas now there is this shift towards actually do I like the company I'm buying from do I believe that they're doing the right thing do they care for others there's more thinking going on than there used to be are you are you conscious that when people buy the toilet paper from who gives a crap there is that sort of you know proudly putting it on display whereas before it might be just shoved in the cupboard but you might have because of your very clever cool looking packaging that element of no i'm proud to be associated with that yeah i mean i think like when we first started there was probably 50 things that we said wouldn't it be cool if we did this and then that happened? Mm. And one of those 50 things was, wouldn't it be cool if we could design packaging that people loved so much they'd want to take our rolls out of the back of the bathroom cupboard and, and put them on display? Yeah. And so when that actually happened, you know, maybe two out of the 50 things that we, we thought about originally, when that actually happened, we were like, oh, my God, this is amazing to kind of see this, this play out in yeah. a way that, um, that adds to the customer experience and, and makes our customer you know, excited to, to buy from us. Um, so I think uh, this is sort of a, um, it's, I think it would be easy for me to say, of course we knew that would happen and we designed specifically for that. But I think the takeaway here for anyone, you know, trying to, um, to create something new is that you have to try a lot of these different ideas to mm. ultimately find the ones that work. And we got lucky on that one by trying, yeah, a whole bunch of different stuff and and that one being the one that that really took off in just an amazing way. So, um, you know, we're super proud of that and and we think a lot about how to create a, 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 a differentiated, enjoyable, delightful customer experience and, and packaging is a big part of that, but there's a lot of other elements that mm -hmm. go in there around copywriting and thinking about the delivery experience and what happens when someone opens a box and mm. all of those different parts of it. I think one of my favorite kind of examples of that is recently we did an A to Z limited edition or A to Z. Sorry, I always get in trouble for using the American <laughs> pronunciation. Yeah. But an A to Z limited edition um, where, you know, every role had two or three different letters on it. And so you could put the roles in your bathroom and turn them around to spell out different messages. Yeah. And in the top of the box, when you opened it up, the middle two rolls were turned on their side and said hi in the middle of the box. And so it was this really delightful experience where, you know, as you open the box up, you get this very colourful kind of moment and, and you know, your toilet rolls are talking to you, which I just absolutely loved. It's great. And on your website, you, you've got some very clever play going on and you've got the uh-oh with, with the five rolls, uh-oh with an exclamation mark. That's brilliant. You're just putting that on the toilet. It just makes the whole thing fun. There's a story associated with it. People talk about it, which is great. They share the word. They share the love. I just want to ask you about once people are drawn in, and, and by the way, I ought to mention your, your blog as well, which I think is the greatest sort of name for the blog because, let's face it, there's a lot of rubbish out there, but Talking Crap, what a great name for a, <laughs> for a, for a blog. Um, but once people are drawn into your sort of ecosystem, do they become more hooked on the sort of the, 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 the purpose, the, the, the cause? They get caught up in the stories. They then potentially maybe 
want to look for other companies that are doing similar good in other areas, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think when we talk to our customers, we find that um, often the reason they come to us is is actually sustainability. It's this this sustainability mega trend that we've got going on and they're trying to find ways to be better with their everyday purchases. And we're often one of the first products that they buy to kind of make that switch. And so we think about that as almost being like the, the equivalent of a gateway drug into sustainability. Yep. Um, and so I think, um, you know, um, I've actually just forgotten your question. No, just the, the once they're drawn into your story about the, you know, the the, the sustainability and then yeah. the giving of the profits to these very important parts of the world. And, and then they think about other areas that they could be consuming and, and, and doing the same. Yeah. And so I think when customers first find us, <clears throat> it's often because of sustainability. So they're trying to make an eco switch in their, in their lives. And we're often one of the first products that they do that with. And so I think, what we've realized is that the impact side, the donation side, that's often more of a retention story where once someone's kind of in our database or, or following us on social media, we can start to talk to them about, you know, the social impact that comes through the purchases that they make with us. And that becomes something that brings them back in and keeps them engaged over time, particularly because, you know, the donations that we're making get bigger and bigger, which I think is an important part of the story. Um, and so that's kind of amazing to sort of see those different different blades that we can cut the the brand story with and and talk to the customer about. And I think that yeah, definitely definitely our customer research shows that that often you know we're one of the first switches that someone's making, and so we have this opportunity to educate them about what other things they might be able to do in their life to to be more impactful, whether that's you know social or or um, yeah environmental i love that i love it, it raises the consciousness and it, it, it spreads around which is great let's let's just finish by um as i will be with this podcast getting recommendations from the people i speak to as to who i should speak to next i like the idea of this evolving organically and especially through people who are doing amazing work in this sort of purpose and vision and purpose and pro- profit sort of side of things um i asked tim duggan I was mentioning earlier about who I should speak to next. He very kindly has put me in touch with you. But I want to ask who you think has a great story to tell that my listeners should be aware of. Um, I think I'll give you a couple because I think that, you know, it depends what way you want to go with it. Um, so someone that's, you know, got a similar sort of business to us that I think is quite interesting is is Hey Tiger. So Sayan Taid from Hey Tiger would be one option. And then the other, you know, if you kind of want to take a different angle would be maybe to talk about some of the investors that back purpose-led businesses. Um, and so, you know, some of the people that come to mind there are, are Will Richardson or Adam Milgram from the Giant Leap Fund. Um, so I think they could be really interesting to, to have on the show and, and talk about, you know, why they're interested in this space and, and why they think this space is is going to outperform, you know, financially what all of the traditional investments would, would otherwise look like. Yeah, that's a nice idea. Um, who would have thought that you can do good and you can be more successful? Yeah. <laughs> Because whenever we hear about uh, the solutions to our world problems, it's always, well, we can have this or you can have that. You know, for example, we can have the environment or we can have jobs. <laughs> it's never a case of, well, what about, what about both? You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, I mean, a, that, that's exactly what we're trying to show, that mm. you should be able to have both and that when you get that right, you'll be able to, to be more successful than, than just doing one of them by themselves. It's been a great story so far. I, I sense that you have, in many ways, only just really got cracking on where this 
could go. Do you, do you, do you have a, a sort of a final question where you think this might be in five to 10 years? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're selling now um, US, UK, Europe, Australia, and kind of focusing on continuing to grow out those markets. Um, we've got some some new products that we're working on, which we're super excited about. So really trying to, to become that, you know, globally relevant kind of um, business that that can take its donations up to the next level to truly go and solve mm. some of these these big problems that we have in our society. So that's sort of what the the roadmap looks for, like for us. Well, and, you, you, and you, we talked about the $5.85 million donation to, uh, to the great causes um, because of your success in 2020. You then mentioned the fact that to really do it justice, what sort of numbers would you be needing to donate? Well, I mean, this this is a huge problem. So sanitation, you know, now about 2 billion people globally without access to a toilet. So if you think about maybe the cost of, of providing, you know, toilets to someone for a year, even is, is $2, which is probably quite a lowball estimation, then, um, you know, on the back of the envelope, that's like $4 billion every year in order to go about solving that problem. Yeah. Now, the, the math isn't that simple because if you can if you can get someone with their foot on the economic ladder then they don't need to rely yep. on donations every year moving forward. But um, that sort of sets the the scale that's necessary in order to go about solving problems like these. So our business needs to be you know, into the tens of billions of dollars of revenue in order to, to generate the donations that we believe are necessary to go about solving this problem. And that is a mega project, without doubt. And uh, I'm hoping that others will come in to help you. It doesn't all have to land on your shoulders. Yeah. And as you said, you know, for that reason, it really does feel like we're just getting started Mm. because we know that we have this very long road in front of us and there's so much stuff that we're not doing as well as what we possibly could do today. So we're super excited about, you know, um, continuing that growth journey that we're on and and, um, making sure we can get to that goal, which we think will take about 30 years to get there. (laughs) <laughs> plenty of work ahead Simon I, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you it, it's wonderful talking to, to people in your space who clearly adore what they do they know that it matters they know that they're they're in for the long term because of the difference that they're making but it, it would also sound to me and to many of the listeners that it sounds like a joy to come into work every day yeah no it really does I think something I figured out early on in my career was that when I was working on problems that I wasn't really that passionate about I couldn't really give it my all and I felt like I was sort of wasting my own potential. Um, I think who gives a crap, you know, allows me personally to kind of unlock all of my potential and probably a little bit more. And I hope that, that that's the same that it does for a lot of our staff members who um, really get excited to, to come and work for us because we're, you know, collectively working on this, this problem that's, that's bigger than who we are as individuals and who we are as a company. We wish you all the very best and uh, continued success. We'll, we'll we'll be tracking all your progress from here on, but uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening to this who'll find themselves um, purchasing from, from you at the same time because of the story that you've just shared with us today. Thanks so much, Simon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to chat. You've been listening to Purpose and Vision. For more details about this podcast, go to the website purposeandvisionpodcast.com or find us on Facebook at Purpose and Vision on Instagram, purpose.vision, and on Twitter, at PurposeVision1. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, and perhaps you'd be kind enough to rate the show. This will help others find it. Just go to where you download your podcast and enter a review. Thank you so much.